So for the past three weeks, we have been spending time in the book of Philemon. And we've spent some time talking about the story, right? This ancient letter, this ancient story with three, really three main characters. First of all, uh, there's Philemon. Philemon is a slave owner and a church leader spoken highly of by Paul. There's Philemon. Second person in this letter and story is Onesimus, who is an escaped slave from Philemon's household, who has then subsequently come to faith in Jesus. And then thirdly, there's Paul, the apostle, the prisoner of the Lord, and dear friend of both, who then writes this letter. This 25-verse little postcard is complex, right? It's, it's nuanced, and there's some complicated things at hand, and it's hard because the elephant who was in the room left the room and now came back to the room, which always makes for more difficult kinds of conversations. And this book, then, is the appeal of Paul, the apostle, though he doesn't use his apostolic force, but it's this letter, this appeal for Onesimus to be welcomed back, to be received back, not as a bondservant anymore, but he wants him to be received back as a brother. And so Paul, we talked about this last week, he he bridges the gap relationally, he offers to pay any debts financially. And he says, I want you to welcome him back as though you were welcoming me. It's a request for reconciliation. It's a request for restoration. It's a request for forgiveness. All packaged in this tiny little letter that gets sent to Colossae, to Philemon, and the church that meets in his house. To quote the great theological movie, Sound of Music, How do you solve a problem like Onesimus? How do you you work through this stuff? I'm thankful this letter's in here. Because our lives are complex and nuanced and challenged. And there's stuff we run into that you're like, where's the script for this? I don't know. How do we handle this? How do you fix challenges on this scale? How do you solve a massively complicated relational situation and work toward peace? Well, tonight we are going to wrap up our four weeks in Philemon. This is the end of it tonight. And as we end this book, as we end this letter, again, I'm not going to offer simple fixes But I can tell you this, that the way that God works and the way that God moves, it's different than the way that the world works. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that. And I don't come here as an expert. I come and share this as someone learning this, as a fellow traveler who doesn't have this figured out yet in all of my relationships. But we submit ourselves to the word of God and invite the spirit of God to speak and teach and lead and guide again tonight. Because this letter talks about the way of Jesus, which ultimately is the way of grace. It's the way of grace, which is just, it's a very different way than how the world tells us to live. 
In this world, we're formed in a certain way. The way of grace cuts a different path altogether. So if you haven't yet already, open your Bibles to the book of Philemon. Uh, I want you to open to the last line. And again, if you can't find it near the end of the New Testament, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James. Here's verse 25. Again, there's only one chapter in the book. Verse 25, last line. Paul's closing words as he closes the letter. He writes, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul ends this letter on a note of grace. He rings the bell of grace. And we're going to take a look tonight at a few more details of what Paul says before we close the letter. But I keep coming back to this idea. Not only does Paul have kingdom imagination, which we talked about a few weeks ago, but as I read this letter, I find that Paul is deeply committed to the way of grace. Or even more specifically, Paul is confident in the sufficiency of grace. He's really confident that grace works. He really is confident of what God does in a grace-driven way. I know that for some of us, uh, grace may be a churchy word. Like grace, what does that mean? You tune out when we talk about grace. Or it's a slippery word, hard to define. But again, the more I read through this letter, I keep coming back to being amazed at the countercultural way of grace. It is deeper, wider, longer, bigger, in full dimension. Amazing and different again than the way of the world. If you look at the letter, uh, the story of Philemon is bathed in grace. Even textually speaking, it's laid out with grace. It begins in grace, verse 3, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then it ends in grace with this final statement of grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And then in between verse 3 and verse 25, this storyline has the substance of grace. Right? There's pleas for reconciliation. There's requests for forgiveness. There's a desire for those who were estranged to now have a new relationship. The only way that happens is the way of grace. The only way it makes sense is because Paul is so confident that grace is beautiful and better than any other way. And I'll be honest, sometimes I'm not so convinced of that myself because it's not my knee-jerk reaction. So, one last sermon in this series. I want us to see this, hear this, watch this, and hopefully have, again, to use the phrase kingdom imagination, hopefully to have our minds opened up again here to how we live, to how we approach things, to how we approach our lives and problems and situations, and that we may do it in a different way than maybe we're being told or sold by the world. Grace is a different way to live. So I want to highlight why it's different and how it's different in these two ways. Grace creates a want to, not a have to mentality. Big difference between the two. Also, grace cultivates an even more, not a bare minimum response. Those are the two things I want to share tonight.
First, grace creates a want to, not just a have to mentality. Unfortunately, it's really easy for us to live out of a have to mentality, right? Again, that for me can be a a knee-jerk reaction. It's called duty. It's called compulsion. Unfortunately, it's what a lot of leadership, it's what a lot of parenting, and what a lot of discipleship is built on. Duty and compulsion. When you're the person in charge, when you have authority, it's a whole lot easier to pull on the duty lever to try and create change in someone else. Religion is built on the have-tos. So is legalism. So is some forms of morality. A person finds out what's expected of them, and okay, out of duty, I'm going to do it. Uh, To this point, the key word I'm going to highlight here in Philemon is the word compulsion. Look at verse 14. This is kind of going back in the story just a little bit. As Paul is writing to Philemon, he says, But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Again, back to the specifics of the letter and the conflict. So without a doubt, Paul has something he wants to see happen. He wants to see Onesimus welcomed. He wants to see Onesimus restored. He wants Philemon to welcome him as a brother. He wants him to transfer any debts to his account. But Paul is very clear. The one thing he's not going to do is demand it. He says, I don't want you, Philemon, to do this because you have to. I want you to do this because you want to. And he refrains from compulsion. Going back even a little bit further in the letter, verse 8, he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. You see the contrast there. There's a difference. Paul hints, he's like, I could pull rank, You know who I am? You know that you owe me your life? You know that I am the Apostle Paul? Do you know who wrote this letter? The guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament? And Paul could have pulled that card. Mr. Big Shot. Like, I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. Do you know who I am? And yet, even though that's oftentimes what our brains can conceive of, This way of grace is different. This way of Jesus is not just about fostering all the have-tos. Paul is clear. He goes, again, I'm I'm bold enough to command you, but I don't want to compulse you. I'm not going to hit the duty button. And so Paul points to a different way, a way that's foreign to us. I, I read one commentator who was thinking through the letter of Philemon and said, he noticed that there's two groups of people in the New Testament who use compulsion. One is the Romans who conscript Simon the Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross, and also the false teachers in Galatians who compel the people to be circumcised. That's who uses compulsion in the New Testament. The Romans to force someone to carry a cross, and the false teachers who are forcing people to be circumcised. 
Paul says, that's not what we're doing here. This is a different kind of thing. It's not about just commanding alone. It's not about compulsion. It's not just the have-tos. It's an appeal of love. His desire, verse 14, is that he would demonstrate goodness in his response on his own accord. Now, some of you may be thinking, what about obedience? I mean, there are commands in the Bible. Don't get me wrong, the Christian life does have a category of obedience. Like he even says that in Philemon, like a verse, verse 21. He talks about obedience. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you. So he's not opposed to obedience. But the question is, obedient to who and why? In the world of God's grace, his, his free gift, his lavish generosity, in the gospel story, in the kingdom of the new covenant, the goal is not just forced obedience that comes from compulsion or duty or demand. It's obedience that flows from a new heart with new desires and a new spirit. That's the thing. It could look the same. Obedience, obedience that is forced looks very similar that obe- to obedience that is free. But the motivation is very, very different. There's this phrase in Romans chapter 6 where Paul writes in a different place. He says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's what Paul is after. That's what the way of Jesus is about. Not just obedience because, dang it, I have to. But obedience now from the heart. This is the beauty of the new covenant where God says, I'm going to write my law on your heart. I'm going to put my spirit within you, giving you a new heart and a new spirit. So now it becomes, I want to do this in obedience to God, not just because someone is standing over me and is going to whack me or push the smite button on my life if I don't. Many, many people live in fear, unhealthy fear of God. This is different. This is a response to what God has done first to us in Christ. So it's not opposed to obedience, but it's seeking an obedience that comes from within. Paul is calling for, he's expecting, he's confident in the power of God's grace. He sees an abundance of God's grace. Not because someone's hounding you or pressuring you, but a free and willing response to God's love. This is a different kind of tone of a letter. It's like, I'm confident you're going to be obedient. Why? Because I'm confident in the sufficiency of God's grace to be at work in you. He's confident in the power of God's love. He's confident in the power of God's spirit to transform, to do the heavy lifting, to change minds, to transform hearts, to heal wounds, to motivate, to inspire, to lead, to guide in Philemon, in Onesimus, in the community, so that what is right will flow. He's so confident that God is going to do his thing because that's what God does, and that's what grace does. It produces good fruit in the lives of others. It's beautiful. If I'm writing this letter at times, I'll be honest, I'm not that confident in the sufficiency of God's grace. I'd rather turn the screws a little bit just to make sure it gets done. 
Paul's like, I am so confident. I'm sending this letter. I'm sending Onesimus. I'm confident in God's, God's grace is sufficient to work itself out in your story. Free from human manipulation, which results in this beautiful thing. Less control, less manipulation, less guilt, less shame, less driving. It's the beautiful story of the new covenant. And I believe that God invites us to walk in this way. Not just cowering in a life of, what do I have to do? The weight of legalism and moralism and religiosity crushes and gets heavy and gets exhausting. And Paul says, I am so confident in God's grace. I'm confident in what it's going to do. It's going it's to transform you in such a way that you're going to want to do this from the heart. And then, right, so grace creates this want to, not a have to mentality. It also then creates an even more, not a bare minimum response. It's easy to be a have to kind of person. It's also easy to be a bare minimum kind of person. We often live in bare minimum ways all over the place. How many students have asked their teacher, will this be on the test? How many pages do I have to read? What's the bare minimum that I have to do? What's the bare minimum learning that I can do and still get a good grade? Shift uh, realms, the realms of finances. I get asked this question from time to time as a pastor. So how much do I have to give? And whenever someone asks me that question, I wonder if we're asking the right questions. Like, do I have to tithe? If so, how much do I have to tithe? What's the bare minimum? Do I have to tithe on the gross or the net? How little can I give and still make God happy? I think we're asking the wrong questions. Hey, doctor, how many times a week do I have to exercise and still be healthy? What's the, like, what's the bare minimum that I can do? It's a form of poverty mentality. The poverty mentality is living in unnecessary scarcity and fear. And so often in scarcity and fear, we only want to do what is required. What's the bare minimum? And it begins to show up. And I love, I love Paul's statement here as he finishes this letter to Philemon. Verse 21. Again, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Even more than I say. He's so confident about the sufficiency of the gospel of grace. He's like, I don't have to guilt and shame you. I don't have to manipulate. I am confident of God's grace doing a work in you that's going to make a response from within to be obedient. And you're going to go above and beyond. Because that's what the gospel does. That's how grace works even more in excess. The gospel is not forced. It's free. It's not bare minimum. It's abundant. It produces an expectation of more. Let me read how he ends the letter. I haven't filled in the gaps here. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. 
For I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So as he ends, he makes his appeal. Right? He has offered Onesimus back to Philemon. Verse 22, he's like, uh, hopefully in your prayers I will be released. And I'm going to come visit you. So get a guest room ready for me. Make sure the sheets are all tucked in, mint on the pillow. I'm coming soon. And it's not just his request for hospitality, though it is a request for hospitality. But here's what he's saying. I'm so confident of what's going to happen in the situation. I'm going to get out of prison soon. I want to come see you. And I want to watch and see firsthand exactly. I'm going to follow up here. And I want to see with my own eyes just how God's grace works in your situation. I can't wait to come and see how you two have worked this out. I want to come and witness reconciliation. Even more. Even more. Where, where does even more come from? My brothers and sisters, don't you know that we serve the God of even more? Ephesians Chapter 3, Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, or to use the New King James, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Like Paul's like at a loss for words to describe the even moreness of God's power, God's work, God's sufficiency, God's power to handle anything that we face. He is the one who does far more exceedingly, abundantly. He runs out of descriptors, like beyond even what you can think, imagine, plan, scheme, figure out on your own. He is the one who does even more than that. And in his grace, he has blessed us with more upon more, even more. Ephesians 1, if you ever read through the opening of Ephesians, Paul reminds us that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that God has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption through his blood. Our sins have been forgiven. We've received an inheritance. We've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He has seated us in heavenly places and given us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's his grace. It's even more. We don't deserve it. And it just keeps going. That's the God of even more. It rolls on and on. God's grace flows freely. God's grace smashes the limitations of the bare minimum. And I believe he desires the same for his people. The Father has withheld nothing from us, not even his Son, not even his Spirit. And when our hearts and our minds are flooded with the knowledge and the understanding of his grace, how could we settle for less than even more. That's the idea, is that we get swept up in the avalanche of the grace of God. And it begins to change and transform how we respond 
in obedience from the heart in line with the kingdom story of even more and even more and even more. So here's the offer. Could we be even more in our giving? Like That's not just a plea from a pastor shaking down a church to get more money out of you. It's a desire to align ourselves with the way the kingdom works, to align ourselves with the gospel of grace. This verse here, 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Again, Paul, a lot of Paul today. Paul writes, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That Greek word cheerful is the word hilaron. God loves a hilarious giver. He does not want us grabbing our wallets and our bank accounts and our apps to, no, 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 God, you can't have that. He wants us to be Generous, even more hilarious in our giving. Could we be a community that is even more in our hospitality? Again, I know COVID has thrown wrenches in what that looks like or how that gets expressed. But it's like a baseline value for us as a church. It's not... Oh dear, how many times do I have to have that person come over so I can check the box? Oh, even more. Not a have to, a want to. Even more. Could we be even more in our friendships? Not just who do I have to tolerate, but in my time and my investment with others. The avalanche of grace flows and carves new pathways. Pertinent to Philemon, can we be even more in our forgiveness? This is the the exact same scenario Jesus and his disciples talked about. Matthew 18, 21. Again, and there's stories that frame this dialogue, but I'll just stick with this little dialogue and interaction. Matthew 18, 21, Peter came up, said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter thinks he's giving an even more response. How many times must I forgive him? Seven? I know way that, that is lavish. Seven times, Jesus? What does Jesus say? Next verse. I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. 77 times. I don't like forgiving some people once. Right? And in those places where, again, and I read even like the story last week from Matthew, right? The servant that begs for his debt to be forgiven gets this like astronomical national debt forgiven for himself, and then he goes and finds, finds the person that owes him a smaller amount and shakes him down. I'm, I'm that man. I want to shake people down. You owe me. Can we be even more? That the avalanche of God's grace cuts new channels for forgiveness. That's this kind of forgiveness for people. 
And again, that's not to say that we enable abuse or that we never have boundaries or that we live as unhealthy people, but there's a radical call to be a people of forgiveness. That's the only reason why Philemon can be written. I want you to receive the slave that escaped your house, and I want you to welcome back, not as a bondservant, but as a brother, and forgive all of his debts. Put that on my account. That's an even more response. Paul says, I'm confident you're going to do even more than that, because that's what grace does. It would be very easy for us to wrap up this sermon series with questions of have-to and bare-minimum thinking. All right? Philemon's over. Who do I have to forgive? How many stinking times? What's the bare minimum that I have to do to clear my conscience? And I guess I just offer a very different paradigm to flip it back into grace. In whatever category you think of, may you find Jesus inviting you to obedience from the heart. Because he knows it's good for us. It's better that way and it's beautiful. May we find a a giant grace-driven get-to. May our responses to the lavish love of Jesus produce a bumper crop harvest of even more. Even more. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this book. And we thank you for this letter. We thank you for Paul and Philemon and Onesimus. We thank you for your Spirit's work inviting us. And we confess, Jesus, that we can be stingy and stodgy, driven by duty, compulsion, bare minimums. The gist pale in comparison to the beauty and the splendor of your glory in the kingdom of God. And so for the places, God, where we have been deformed by the way of the world, God, we ask for an ability to see that, to confess that, to repent and turn, and by your grace, walk in a different way. That you would mark our church in a different way. You'd help us to have an imagination that looks more like you than this world. So Lord, help us. I I thank you that you are patient and kind. This work comes slow, not easy. But may we have our hands wide open to you, ears open to you, for whatever you say. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.